once you find your spot, you can stick your finger there and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you asking for your Spirit's tutelage in Scripture. We confess as a church that this is the inspired and inerrant and authoritative and sufficient Word of God that we are about to read together and to study together and seek together to put it into practice. So God, would you meet with your people? Would you help us in being tuned in to your message for your church as you speak to it through the Word of God? Might we have humble and teachable hearts and uh, as we go deep into the doctrinal truths of the Word of God, rise us to greater heights of worship and service. We'll be cautious to give you all the praise in Christ's name. Amen. In 1972, the year of my birth, an exposition of Ephesians 4 called Body Life appeared, written by Ray Stedman, pastor of the Peninsula Bible Church of Palo Alto, California. Some of you may have read uh, some of Ray Stedman's uh, works. But since then, it has had a profound effect on the structure of many churches and has even been introduced, has introduced a new term into contemporary Christian speech. We talk about body life, which was the title of that book, Body Life. What made the book so successful was its description of how the principles of Ephesians 4 had been put into practice by this one thriving church in California. Essentially, the book's about spiritual gifts. I've got several books of spiritual gifts on my bookshelf, but the underlying premise of this one is that each Christian has at least one gift and that he or she must use it if the church is to be healthy. That was the pattern of the early church. Stedman said, whenever anyone by faith in Jesus Christ passed from the kingdom of and power of Satan into the kingdom of God's love, he was immediately taught that the Holy Spirit of God had not only imparted to him the life of Jesus Christ, but it also equipped him with a spiritual gift or gifts which he was then responsible to discover and exercise. I'm glad he used those two words, discover and exercise, or put it into practice. In our day, many churches are following the mandates an example of Ephesians 4 and are, are thriving because of it. When we think about the church, though the church is to some degree an organization as expressed in each local congregation uh, and, and membership, it's also an organism that consists of all the redeemed universally in the body of Christ. This is what Christ promised to build in Matthew chapter 16 verses 18 to 21. We've mentioned in our study of Ephesians that uh, the apostle gives some great ecclesiology, uh, fleshing out the doctrine of the church. He says that it is the church, chapter 1, verse 22, and chapter 3, verses 10 and 23. It, it is his body, chapter 2, verse 16. It's the household of God, verse 19. It is the building, Ephesians 2.21. It is a holy temple in the Lord. That too is in verse 21. The next verse, it is a habitation of God. It is the mystery that we 
read about and studied together in Ephesians 3.3. It is the saints, chapter 4, verse 12, which we'll get to today. It is the body of Christ, same verse. It is the whole body, verse 16 of chapter 4. He talks about dear children in chapter 5, verse 1. We are children of light, verse 8. Members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones, verse 30. And even in the final chapter of this little epistle, the mystery of the gospel is this church. Ephesians 4 to 6, he exhorts members of this universal church to proper conduct towards each other, the world, God, and members of their own earthly families. And he presents to us that the context for spiritual growth and effectiveness and maturity, our own sanctification, is the Christian community, the church, the body of Christ. Though we are united in position, we are very diverse in our practice. Would you read along with me as I, as I read for us verses 7 to 16? But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, He ascended, what does it mean except that He also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is Himself also He who ascended far above all the heavens so that He might fill all things. And He gave some His apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from which the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love." There is an extended passage that we just read, which probably has at least four sermons in it. We're going to cover it in, in one. We've got two more weeks in Ephesians chapter 4, and then Pastor Joey will take us back to the gospel of Matthew. But would you notice in this passage, even though there's much more we could expand upon and dig into in the, the depths of this great doctrine, uh, just two radical truths that you could grasp with me this morning concerning body life in the church. Two radical truths for us to grasp. I don't know if you're in the habit of taking notes. That might be a good practice for you to start doing or, or doing sporadically so that you can uh, hang your thoughts on. Uh, once in a while, we put the outlines in the bulletin and uh, just follow the flow of the thought of, uh, of the sermon, which is uh, the flow of the thought of the author, typically. First radical truth that we want to grasp is the exalted King, Christ, who distributes gifts, verses 7 to 10. The exalted King, Christ, who distributes gifts. Paul transitions from speaking of unity of the body last week, verses 1 to 6, 
to now describing it in terms of God-given, sovereign variety gifts. Though there's corporate solidarity, there's also differences. And you might want to note here that they are, they're not ethnic diversity or backgrounds that he is emphasizing, but they have to do with Christ's sovereign distribution of divine gifts or abilities among different members of that one body. Now, as we think about gifts, there's much more than we could ever cover in one given sermon because you look at Ephesians 4 and there are yet three other passages. There are four lists, main lists in the New Testament uh, addressing spiritual gifts. You've got Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. You've got Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. And so you've got to kind of do it after you study each of those passages, then you've got to do a systematic theology to put it all together of our theology of gifts. We'd have to carefully develop these texts in context that, that emphasize the comprehensiveness of God's bestowing of gifts to each of His children, each part of the body. I think we'd mentioned some of the application that we would love to have gotten in last week, some significance to the study on unity and even this study on spiritual gifts that uh, this is going to, Paul presents us even another reason for why we should uh, consider more of the need for merging churches rather than splintering and overplanting against this model that Paul fleshes out before us. We ought to have as many gifts represented in one given locale so that the body in its ex- local expression be as complete an expression as possible. Paul's not emphasizing our distinctiveness apart, but our unified diversity in the body in that expression. Notice his reiteration. Uh, Last time in the previous verses, we saw him repeating that word one. And in verse 7, beginning our text for today, but to each one. And so he's tying this passage into the previous one, focusing here on each one who's been given a grace gift, a spiritual gifting to contribute to the growth of the body. Every individual member, each who has turned from their sin and embraced Christ as their only hope and way of salvation, receives grace from God. And it's not just grace unto salvation, but it's also grace unto good deeds. Remember, There are appropriate actions of godliness and deeds of service. I think I'd mentioned when we were praying together during the pastoral prayer and as we reflected upon uh, John John 6, uh, there can be this overemphasis on uh, deeds, but let's make sure it's biblical that there is not just doctrine without deeds. The gospel is not what men should do for God, but in what He has done for man even in granting gifts that they can gladly utilize and respond in faithful obedience. Recall to mind what he said back in chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So salvation is not an issue of what you need to do, but what has been done and accomplished by Christ alone. Sufficient, absolutely satisfying to the Father. It's not as a result of work so that no one may boast but it's not apart 
from enabling us to serve Him in our deeds of service. Verse 10, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. All of our deeds, all of our works before salvation were worthless as filthy rags. Now they're empowered by the Spirit of God not to, not to uh, receive or merit us God's favor, but as an expression of what we've already had poured into our lives by the lavish grace of God. And, and what Paul wants us to see here is that uh, Christ doesn't haphazardly grant them. It is a sovereign distribution. No room for complaining here, but simple submission, discerning it, and ministering it actively and intentionally for the glory of God. Each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And you notice what he does in the next verse. Verse 8, he cites Psalm 68. This psalm refers to God as the divine warrior who achieves great victory over his enemies and ascends his holy mountain. He, it's in italics. It should be in italics in your Bible. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. The background to this is, is spectacular. So, so put on your, your, uh, your, your Jewish sandals to understand this through their ears as they would have heard this. When the king came back from battle, this, this triumphant procession, which was characteristic of ancient Near East, it was a victory march when the, when the king comes through the gates of the city or an emperor from the battlefield. He enters the capital city. All the citizens line the streets to hail their conquering hero, and he leads the procession followed by his forces and his captives and his spoil, all the booty. Comes through the gate and towards the soldiers, the generals, and even those who stayed home, they get spoils of the war. They were given as gifts, the spoils of his victory. That's the background to which the psalmist writes of his day. And so, Paul extracts that Old Testament uh, passage, and it's, it's amazing how he, he gives su- supreme grace to his children who respond in grateful, obedient service. And Paul doesn't change the original meaning of the Old Testament when he uses it here in the New Testament. He interprets it, however, Christologically. And he sees Christ as the victorious warrior that comes back to the city with the booty. He's vanquished his enemies. According to some, in regards to the context of Ephesians here, uh, demons in the spirit world, the principalities and powers and authorities, and then he ascends to, and he ascends to heaven, setting the stage for him to distribute divine gifts for service to every member of his body in his church. Back in chapter 1, verses 20 to 22, we, he mentioned the foes that are defeated and put in subjection under his resurrection. Remember what he said? He brought about in Christ, uh, the Father brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
In, uh, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul specifically says that by the cross and resurrection, Christ stripped them of their power and authority and publicly exposed them and led them in a triumphal procession. He put all in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all, all Ephesians 1. And as He gifts believers from His exalted position, He fills them for service. He builds His church not by dictating over them, but by His sovereign bestowal and their submitted service. Under inspiration of the Spirit of God, the apostle explains the original sense. Though the Old Testament author of that psalm may not have known the specific person, Christ, or the timing, but by analogy to God, the triumphant warrior who received gifts of homage from his captives, this one is Christ. The triumphant divine warrior who, after ascending his throne, blesses his people with gifts. See, we talk about the resurrection of Christ a lot. We talk about the ascension of Christ. But how much time do we spend meditating on the exaltation of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father? And that's what is pictured here. From that exalted status, he grants gifts to his children. And then he starts to interpret uh, uh, some of this, uh, verses 9 and 10. Now this expression, he who ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also, he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. You know, verses 9 and 10 introduce some tricky interpretive issues that uh, people have been talking about for centuries. Many, especially the early church fathers, see his descent as a descent into the underworld. Others, such as if you've got your, uh, an ESV translation of Scripture with you today, they give you an interpretive translation when they put the, the comma right before the earth. So they're telling you that we believe he didn't descend to the underworld, but to the earth. The earth is further describing this descent. So it's either the place of the dead, Hades, the underworld, or it is a descent to earth during His incarnation, that time that He lived under heaven, referring to his, the humiliating aspects of His earthly career. Many commentators, uh, uh, contemporary commentators, would take that, uh, that latter view. There's even others who... who take it as Christ, this descent being Christ's burial, or others saying that it uh, refers to the coming of the Spirit at, at, at Pentecost. I think you get, get real creative for that one. I can't say dogmatically. You know, you're not supposed to come up to the pulpit unless you can say authoritatively. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm tempted to go with the former, though I'm not going to be dogmatic. I, I'd like to study the text more. And, uh, but the consensus through the years is that he went to the place of the dead, Hades. It's got a great deal commending it, like the fact that Paul could have said very clearly to make it clear and unambiguous. Uh, in uh, hermeneutics class Sunday uh, or Tuesday, we, we introduced the term the perspicuity of Scripture, meaning that it's clear. 
Well, just because Scripture is clear doesn't mean that there aren't hard passages, and I think that this is one of those hard passages. He, uh, so he very easily could have said he descended to earth to make it clearer and more helpful to us. But you think about the first century religious context, the underworld themes which were prominent in Ephesus and Western Asia Minor with a variety of underworld deities that are worshipped those that write, wrote sacred Scripture could use language of the day, sayings, proverbs of the day, but once they use it in Scripture, it's inscripturated, it's inspired by God. The, those that uh, were the converts at Ephesus would have quickly grasped, and here he speaks powerfully to affirm Jesus' lordship over the powers of darkness, even that the church amidst darkness in our day can be reminded of as we come to the text today because it's getting darker and darker to live until Jesus returns. You could even cross-reference 1 Peter 3.19, another hard passage where we're told Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison. So if the view here is the view of Hades, it makes much more impressive the ascent so if he go, uh, Homer Kent in his commentary gave, gave that view. So if he did go all the way down, then when he went all the way up, that makes that huge contrast. He not only descended to preach victory, but also ascended victoriously to the heavenly throne to offer great hope and encouragement. You notice that uh, he didn't just go down in his descent. He went up in his ascent. He went up above all the heavens, possibly implying various levels of heaven. Remember when Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 of the third heaven? Uh, we don't want to make much of a point over it, but maybe he's just simply stressing the supremacy of Christ here in his Christology, his, his supremacy over all things, including the hostile principalities and powers. So he descended to the extremes of the underworld to gain exaltation to the uttermost of the heavens. He owns all, and since He owns all, He controls all, and it's His power that we need in the church of Jesus Christ. So as you come to the church building with the church gathered, if you think, well, the church isn't all it should be, take that as a, as a challenge. We've said before, need seems an assignment given. Do something about it. When we look at Newtown Bible Church and how many people usually come here, this ought to be a church of over 70 ministers. One shepherd and however many other shepherd elders God raises up here but many ministers. That's the point that he's getting into in this passage in Ephesians 4. So we must recognize and grasp that radical truth of the ascended King Christ giving gifts to His people, which other, pa- other gifts passages will flesh out as we try to search. And uh, even, you might even uh, use your church, the front cover of your bulletin, uh, and pray over this week, okay, Lord, how have you gifted me for service, and where do you want me serving in the local expression of your body? Because as we recognize the ascended Christ who gives gifts, the second radical truth to grasp for us today in this text 
concerning body life is the exalted king not only gave gifts to everyone in the body, but he also gave gifted ones. That's the second point. Verses 11 to 16, he gave gifted ones. Though the sovereign king, the resurrected and ascended Lord, has bestowed grace upon every member of the body individually, as he willed, he also gave other gifted individuals to equip those gifted ones, to establish and, and nurture churches and to minister the Word of God. You notice how he starts this next section off in verse number 11. And he, speaking uh, 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 in an intensified way, he himself gave as the, the sovereign one who raises up such men and supplies gifted leaders to the church. When we get a biblical ecclesiology, we understand that these gifted ones that equip God's gifted saints are not elected officials. These aren't distinguished offices that one receives by right after serving in a series of menial lower roles. That's what uh, happened in the Roman political system. We've mentioned before that man doesn't make elders, but God raises them up. We tried to stress that in our Titus series. Church simply affirms the work of God. But Paul gives us a fivefold list that isn't necessarily uh, complete. And here he emphasizes not the foundational roles like he did back in chapter 2 and verse 20, but the advancement. How does the church of Jesus Christ grow and mature into the image of Christ. That's what he's going to emphasize in this fivefold list with these men with the ministry of the Word in equipping the saints. And we want to emphasize the ministry of the Word or proclamation over programs, which is the bent of many ministries today. The surest road to the church's spiritual stagnation or to pastoral burnout or to both is for the pastor to become so engulfed in activities and programs that he's basically a spiritual life coach organizing all the, all the programs of the church, but has little time for prayer in the Word. That's disastrous. Programs that succeed can be even more destructive than those that fail if they're done in the flesh and for human satisfaction rather than the Lord's glory. It's a lack of the knowledge of God's Word and obedience to it, not a lack of programs and methods that destroys God's people. There must be the proclamation of truth through gifted ones to the gifted saints of the body. So the first concern of leadership of the church in Paul's ecclesiology should be for the filling of seats, not the empty ones. Our concerns are who are here, not who, not, not who is not here. How can we help those that are in the pews become active participants in the work of God in this locale? So we don't concern ourselves, no matter how small we may be, who's not at church, who is here for the equipping hour. There was a young preacher who complained to Charles Spurgeon, that his own congregation was too small, and Spurgeon replied, well, maybe it's as large as you'd like to give an account for in the day of judgment. <laughs> Enough of his mumbling and complaining for his small congregation. As he 
got busy with those that God sovereignly brought His way to equip them and release them for ministry. During the Arab-Israeli War of 1967, an American reporter was flying over the the Sinai Desert with an Israeli officer, and they spotted some 50,000 stranded Egyptian soldiers who obviously were dying of thirst. When the situation was reported in the newspapers, a number of world leaders and organizers tried to do something to help. But every time a plan was suggested, you know what happened. Some military, diplomatic, or bureaucratic obstacle prevented it being carried out. So by the time help came, thousands of soldiers had died. Red tape! How equally tragic it is for churches to spin their wheels on programs and committees while thousands around them are desperately in need of spiritual water of the Word, that they must see Jesus, give us Jesus, Sunday in and Sunday out. Teach us the Word of God. Equip us to lead lives of gratitude to our Savior. There must be that emphasis, this priority of proclamation over programs. And he clearly distinguishes and differentiates each category of gifted leaders that the sovereign king gave to his church. And he makes these different groups. He said, uh, first there are the, uh, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets. So the first two, not necessarily is he referring to Old Testament prophets here, but New Covenant people through whom God spoke. They're listed all throughout Scripture in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Invaluable gift as the churches were established and being built. These two groups of apostles and prophets were foundational. He told us that back in chapter 2 and verse 20. And they declared the revelation of God's Word. In the previous chapter, Ephesians 3 and verse 5, we were told that it's now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. But these two groups died off. Paul was the last, according to Romans 1.1. When the New Testament's completed, there was no more need for these gifted men of the apostles and prophets. Notice the third group of gifted leaders that God gave to His church, the evangelists. Luke referred to Philip as one gifted in this fashion in Acts 21.8, Philip the evangelist. And, and when Paul exhorts Timothy in his pastoral work, make sure you also do the work of an evangelist, 2 Timothy 4.5. This is more of an itinerant ministry proclaiming salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. You notice as well in verse 11 that Alongside apostles and prophets and evangelists, he gave some as pastors and teachers. Pastors are shepherds who are remotely connected to teachers, but we wonder how. Some interpreters and commentators combine the two, even though I I think that we've got different groups here. We've got apostles, we've got Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, a fivefold group, not a fourfold group, to, to combine the, the pastor teachers. They present them as the same ministry function in the local church. You've got commentators on both sides of the fence. 
and they'll use a, a Greek uh, rule, which we, I won't bore you with, on the Granville Sharp rule. For one, I think Paul had already separated the groups, and for a second, it may be a misappropriation of that, uh, that Greek rule. I was uh, checking with a, a scholar. I got to, uh, got to read uh, his whole grammatic, Dan Wallace, who did his doctoral dissertation of the, art, the Greek article that's in this text that the whole question's about. Pastors and teachers are not to be necessarily identified as one group of gifted ministers, which Calvin had held to. They're not the same group. But since there is one article, they're, they're not totally distinct and disconnected from each other. So whether we use the term pastor-teacher or whether we see a slight distinction between pastors and teachers. The old Greek scholar A.T. Robertson suggests groups more or less distinct are treated as one for the purpose at hand. Wallace would say that uh, the second is a subset of the first, and so or, or the first is a subset of the second, so pastors are, are, have to be teachers, although not all teachers are pastors. But God gave them both to the church to equip them, to proclaim the truth to them, so that while there is slight distinction between the, the two, it's not a total distinction. And an integral part of pastoring is teaching, sound doctrine. You know, that image stems from from Jesus' designation of Himself as the Good Shepherd in John, John 10. And he, when He commissions Peter, what does He say to Peter? Make sure you feed, take care of My sheep. You can't guard untaught sheep. It's impossible. So that last group, teachers, is a qualification for one serving as an overseer, as an elder, 1 Timothy 3.2, Titus 1.9. All pastors are teachers, but not all teachers pastor. The need was especially great at Ephesus. As Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ, they don't have all the background that the Jews that came to faith in Christ had. So the need for many faithful and gifted teachers for the body to teach them in sound doctrine so that everything unsound that passed before them, they would see it for what it was. And notice... After this grouping of gifted leaders to equip, uh, uh, we go into the life verse of the church, verse 12. The main concern of these pastors and teachers in verse 12, he says, is for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So that as God gave these gifted leaders, these gifted leaders were not merely to do ministry, though they minister. They are to equip. That is their job. Equip and invest time heavily in developing and prepping fellow believers to engage in ministry to the body. You see, the church in Paul's ecclesiology is not one for professionals serving a group of consumers. Though he has the privilege or they have the privilege of equipping the saints, they're not doing all the ministry, one minister doing all the ministry. And in that verse, that life verse of the church, verse 12, you'll notice that we've got three prepositional phrases to kind of uh, expand this out. So that first one, uh, for the equipping of the saints, mark it down. That's the job description. Same, it has the, this equipping or outfitting idea when, when Jesus says everyone who's fully trained 
There's our word, training, equipping. When everyone who's fully trained, he'll be like his teacher, Luke 6.40. Possibly the closest parallel to this usage is in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Many of you have committed these two verses to memory. But we're told about the proclamation and the ministry of the Word that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. So the work of the Word thoroughly equips for every good work. So the shepherd's job is to provide leadership and spiritual resources to cause believers to take on the likeness of their Lord and Savior through a continual obedience to His Word, and they sure sure their proclamation up with their example of godliness. So they could say, even as Paul did, follow me even as I follow Christ. Providing leadership and spiritual resources. So the pastor is feeding himself that he might feed the flock and lead the flock to feed themselves. That's when the whole thing comes to fruition. And that next phrase back in our, back in our text, the second prepositional phrase, so we, so we mark it down for the equipping of the saints is what it's all about. And then subordinate to that for the work of service, saints are engaged in the work that's defined by service. Is that your view of church membership? Membership isn't necessarily voting rights, but it's a serving privilege and responsibility in the assembly. The church is where God has given for you to exercise your giftedness. It's not a place for us to merely hear. And you notice that word that he uses there, that this this service to the body is work. It is work, prepared to labor in the task of ministry that's carried out by all the saints, not the paid staff, not the paid professionals. Notice in verse 7, each one of us. Verse 16, each individual part. And then he wraps up this verse with a third phrase, to the building up of the body of Christ. So as The pastors and teachers are coming alongside to equip the saints so that the saints can do the hard work of service. It is to the intent that they are building up the body of Christ, which he'll bracket the section at the end of verse 16. Go on to the next verse, if you would, verse 13. Where do we we let up? What's the end date when our work visa to the body ends? Until we all attained to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Till we all attain. Notice that he expects every saint of God to reach a full level of maturity. No soul left behind. No excuse for stunted growth. No Peter Pan mentality who refused to grow up if they're truly in Christ. He expresses the goal to which we all strive together, till we all attain. That verb is often used in the physical realm of just arriving. So when when people arrived at Caesarea, Acts 25, 13, when you arrive at Christlikeness, then we can let up our striving and work of service towards each other. 
this is not something reserved for the paid professionals or clergy or gifted elite, but something for all, till we all attained. And so, to give fullest expression of this full attainment, this heavenly call and goal, he gives three aspects. Notice how he parcels this up in this, this one verse. Until we all attain, what? The unity of the faith. A unified understanding of the faith, that which we believe. This could imply that not all the readers yet had come to understanding core convictions of the faith yet. And there can be no unity in the church apart from doctrinal integrity. I think in this way, the church comes of age when it, when it reaches maturity. I think that there's necessity in the lo- local body for uh, catechisms and fundamentals of the faith, discipleship courses, and studying of our statements of faith and our theology, which is biblical and systematic and practical, a full orb equipping that's going on so that we can fully all attain the unity of the faith. A strong reminder that all disciples are to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching through the ministry of pastors and teachers in the church. Notice, second of all, in this verse, till we all attain the mature man or mature corporate body. The King James and New King James translates it, till you all attain to the perfect man. Paul wants the church as a unified whole to grow to maturity. The surest mark of immaturity in the church is individualism. One of the greatest marks of maturity is this, united, this, this unity of the Spirit that we began last week and even Paul continues this week. When we're all become busily engaged in the affairs of the church and when every member eagerly renders service for which the Lord has equipped him and her as they've been instructed in the Word, it's a united force that's achieved You know, I think that if, if we really study Paul's ecclesiology here, and as we look at the contemporary church, I think it's right for those that are on the fringes of the church to not feel apart. I've had those calls throughout the years of ministry where, where people feel like they've been given the shaft and they're not, they're not part of things, and you try graciously as you can to tell them, well, you ought to feel that way because you're not apart. You're not apart. Because relationships are built as we spend time together. It doesn't matter if we're shoveling sod into the garden together or painting a Sunday school room or prayer meeting together. We forge relationships together when we're fellowshipping and worshiping and serving together. Paul's goal is that we all attain to the mature man, to the perfect man. Perfect is reminiscent of Jesus' teaching back in... Sermon on the Mount, to be perfect. It's consistent with the commands of Torah. When, uh, under the law, when they were to bring perfect animals, that which was unblemished, without defect. And so when we think about what we're to be offering the Lord, it's not the, the lame and the halt. It's the best of our efforts. Whatsoever our hand finds to do, we do it with our might out of glory, the glory of Christ. Here, speaking of excellent moral character like what was said of Noah in Genesis 6-9. Beloved, if you're not engaged 
in brutal honesty of your own soul's defects. And, and if you don't have a game plan for how to put off and put on that he's going to talk about these, uh, the next couple of weeks, you're not pursuing obedience in the goal that God set before all of us. And this third aspect of the goal that he sets before our eyes in this verse is that we all attain to the fullness of Christ. He points to Christ's fullness. Christ Himself is the perfect standard. It's all about Him. All believers may attain the goal of becoming a perfect man through the perfect man, Jesus Himself. We're talking about going to the extreme. We're not just to, to pursue growth, but He says here, to attain the fullness of Christ, actually the size of Christ, to reflect His virtues and likeness in life. And until in the events of life we're reflecting His likeness when things don't go our way, we know how far lacking in our maturity we are. So why is this maturity so important? Because it results in stability. That's why it's supposed to be such a big deal for us. Notice verse 14, the result, that as we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You know, the first... First half of the verse reminds us of the danger of immaturity. The young, the immature are much more vulnerable. Paul's on constant visual, vigil in his uh, letters, threatening with uh, unhealthy teaching in, in the Christian community. That's why I said earlier, you can't guard untaught sheep, you know, especially in our age. They're going to nibble themselves off into apostasy with all that's on the radio and all that's in the bookstores. Those who are stunted in growth, those who are infants, he says here, are at the mercy of the waves and the wind which carry us about. Like a cork in a raging sea. There's no stability. It's a graphic figure of instability and helplessness. Gifted ones help us sink our roots deep in the central doctrines of the faith. That's the job of shepherds. Anchor you deep so that when the the winds and waves come, you're not knocked over by it. And in that uh, the second half of that verse, he ratchets it up by talking about the, this trickery or, or trickery of men or craftiness. Variant teachings are not innocent errors, but they're a deliberate strategy to lead people away from the truth of the gospel. This term trickery referred to cheating at dice. Oftentimes when you play dice, they'd be loaded. And so the end result is already established. When you look at anything that is not true doctrine or unified in the faith, verse 3, you've got the fingerprints of the evil one all over it. Several times Paul sees the powers of darkness as actively inspiring dangerous teaching. So even though they don't see his, his uh, horns and pitchfork as people like to portray it on, uh, on uh, paper and, and pen, he sure is aiding and betting and, and, and uh, empowering. 
in Galatians 4, 8 to 10, in 2 Corinthians 11, and Colossians 2, 8. Matter of fact, in this own epistle, Ephesians, he's going to return to that in chapter 6. Oftentimes, people have asked, do those other, uh, do those teaching error know they're wrong? Well, here Paul indicts false teachers as practicing craftiness. He speaks elsewhere of Eve as deceived by the serpent's cunning, 2 Corinthians 11.3. So it is a strategy of deception. Whether they 100% know what's going on, they're at least empowered by the wicked one, but they are more informed. Error is organized with deliberate policy to undermine the truth of God. Therefore, what is our tenor of life? What is our reaction? What is the mainstream supposed to be for the body? Verse 15 speaking the truth in love. Probably better be translated confessing the truth. Maintaining a corporate confession of faith, and we do so out of love, truth in love. The reason why I say confessing the truth, the translation's influenced by the confessional presentation that he already gave us in uh, verses 4 to 6. Clint Arnold in his commentary suggests Quote, it conveys the more specific sense of accepting the truth of the gospel, speaking it out loud in the corporate gatherings of worship, talking about it with fellow believers, and upholding it firmly, unquote. Edie puts it this way, so far from being children tossed, wandering, and deluded with error, let us be possessing and professing the truth. That ought to be the mark stamped on Newtown Bible Church. You know, one more reminder before we conclude. Uh, Stott gives a great reminder of this confession of orthodoxy being done in love. He perceptively comments, saying, quote, Thank God there are those in the contemporary church who are determined at all costs to defend and uphold God's revealed truth. But sometimes they're conspicuously lacking in love. When they think they smell heresy, their nose begins to twitch. Their muscles ripple, and the the light of battle enters their eye. They seem to enjoy nothing more than a fight, unquote. You know, the truth of the gospel needs to be uh, boldly preserved, but it needs to be done with tender, tenderness of others' well-being and their own growth. Notice how he concludes... He, he asserted ver- back in verse 11 that he himself, Christ, gave the purpose, verse 2, of equipping for the work of service for the building up of the body. Verse, verse 13, the result is that we all attain, no, be no longer children. Verse 14, the manner by which we do this is we're confessing the truth and love one to another. But what about the source? What is the empowering for all of this? Verse 16, from, he says at the ver- in the verse uh, 15, into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So as Paul is fleshing out life in the body, life in the church, his ecclesiology, he goes to a quick Christology, exalting Christ who takes center stage so we must look to our head. He is the one into whom and out of whom we grow. 
So Paul elaborates on the identity and function of one into whom Christians will grow. As head, he is both the leader and nourisher, the one who supplies all that we need for growth. So that the more we spend time with Jesus, he nurtures our soul into his image. That he's actively involved in stimulating and directing the ministry and providing all that's needed to develop and mature. So that we could attest with Paul in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we might present every man complete in Christ. Several hundred years ago, back in the 1700s, the Scottish Covenanters refused to acknowledge the king as head of the church. They only would acknowledge Jesus Christ as head of the church, and they sealed their conviction with their blood. Might we be so convicted today? Today, what it might look like is not bowing to the agenda of LGBT or even SB 1146 that's trying to get every Christian university to conform to their wicked agenda. And it takes on many other nuances, many other faces in in the day and age in which you and I live. But notice, as he mentions Christ and him relating to the, the whole body, the entire body actively participating in growth, while they're receiving nourishment from the resurrected and ascended and exalted Lord, so they minister that to each other as they are joined together, emphasizing that there is no personal relationship, nor personal growth, but growth of the body. There is body relationship, a growth that we can't grow without all the members. Calvin said, if we want to be considered members of Christ, let no man be anything for himself, but let us be whatever we are for the benefit of each other so that we end with the victorious Christ actively serving and leading His church. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we do bow to the one supreme head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, asking that you would fill us with a greater understanding of who He is as you reveal Him on the pages of Scripture, especially the Gospels, as we ready ourselves to go back into the Gospel of Matthew. And as we partake of the Lord's table, might we partake worthily, not from personal merit, personal attainment, but the attainment of another, the Lord Jesus, who gave His body to be flogged, to bleed, to be forsaken by the Father, that He might satisfy your wrath on our behalf. He died the death that we deserve. Help us to drink deeply of the salvific and sufficient work of Jesus Christ, making much of Him, even as we would be working together in the ministry with our unique giftedness, all submitted to the Supreme Head. Gather with your church now as we partake together. We pray in His matchless name. Amen.